that's so warming to hear those keys because I can remember them from childhood. Um, did you all get the poems? I want to read two poems from Wilbur, one tonight and one next week. I'm going to put off reading all these birds. Um, I've been telling you that, um, you know, most major poets have bird poems, and I, I don't know that you believe me, but I want to make it clear. Remember, birds are prophetic. Poems, po poets, the really good poets, have something prophetic. They help us to see things we don't know or we don't often see or feel. Um, so I wanted to include that, but but I'm choosing to read another one of his poems tonight um, because it speaks so much more directly to our calling, what we're asked to do by Christ. So we'll read two poems. Um, Richard Wilbur is a contemporary. I, um, I think he's probably one of the most, if not the most amazing American poet that we've had in ages. Um, these are two of his poems. The first one is called, Love Calls Us to the Things of the World. Um, we'll read a couple in the next few weeks by Wilbur. This is one of them. To just help, because I, I know sometimes when you first hear poetry, you're always a little bit unsure, maybe unsure about what's taking place, but let me just make it clear. Remember, it's a lyric. It's, it's spoken from first person, so we're getting the poet expressing what he's experiencing in the moment. That's the convention. Um, he's um, giving words to a moment when he wakes up in the morning and he's coming out of sleep. And remember, sleep is a place of indefinite dreams. Um, we very often in our dreams come to a dark place in our souls. Things that frighten us, we sometimes wake up in fear, in dreams, they can scare us. So we're, we're introduced to a part of our life that we don't want to see. Freud would call it the dark unconscious. That there are things repressed, there are things we don't want to look at, and we store them there. In our dream life, they, they come to the surface. So part of um, psychotherapy from Freud's perspective is um, to, to make a person conscious of those things so that they can do something about them. Okay? This person is coming out of dreams and he wakes up and he looks at the world outside and he sees clothes on a, on a clothesline. And for a moment he has a vision. And I don't want to give it away, but that's the context, okay? He's just waking up, but he's bringing to his experience of the moment what, he's, what he had in his dream life. So that dream life is partly coloring what he's seeing as he wakes up. So it's like a moment where the unconscious intrudes itself, makes itself living on what is happening before the person at that moment in, in the waking world, okay? Love calls us to the things of this world. The eyes open to a cry of pulleys and spirited from sleep. The astounded soul hangs for a moment, bodiless and simple as false dawn. Outside the open window, the morning air is all awash with angels. Some are in bedsheets, some are in blouses, some are in smocks. But truly, there they are, 
Now they are rising together in calm swells of halcyon feeling, filling whatever they wear with the deep joy of their impersonal breathing. Now they are flying in place, conveying the terrible speed of their omnipresence, moving and staying like white water, and now of a sudden they swoon down into so rapt a quiet that nobody seems to be there. The soul shrinks from all that it's about to remember from the punctual rape of every blessed day and cries, Oh, let there be nothing on earth but laundry, nothing but rosy hands in the rising steam and clear dances done in the sight of heaven. Yet as the sun acknowledges with a warm look the world's hunks and colors, the soul descends once more in bitter love to accept the waking body, saying now in a changed voice as the man yawns and rises. Bring them down from their ruddy gallows. Let them be clean linen for the backs of thieves. Let lovers go fresh and sweet to be undone, and the heaviest nuns walk in a pure floating of dark habits, keeping their difficult balance. It's an affirmation that we are incarnational beings. We're not meant to live in, I hope, we're not meant to live in the imagination, in a bodiless world, in dreams. We are not angels. We are, I've just said, there are times that I'm just so focused on that. We are not angels, we have bodies. We have bodies. I, I think they're believe, I, I, in fact, I even got somebody on my mind right now. There are people who believe that when we die, we become angels. God created different species. He created angels. They have no, by the way, they have no bodies. Think about the implications. They don't have bodies, so they can't see particular things. They see essences. What angels apprehend immediately are the essences of things. They see a person as essence in his species, whatever he is. But angels don't have bodies. We do. So our whole life is full of accidents, colors. Paul's wearing a bright red. Call I mean, you're all, you know, dark colors or light or some are eating and, you know. But we live in our senses. They're, they're, um, our mind takes what our senses deliver. That's what makes us unique. We're human beings. We're not angels. So this is, it's a beautiful poem. It's affirming our incarnational nature. He's not meant to stay in that dream world. He wakes up. It's, it's wonderful just to, to hear the description. From all that's about to remember from the punctual rape of every blessed day. We have to return. It's like Peter saying, let's build the tents here. <laughs> and Christ saying, no, you've got to go down. You've got to go back down. There's, there's a crucifixion waiting these things in the body have to happen. So it's a wonderful affirmation of the love that is peculiar to human beings. Love calls us to things of this world. We are meant to love. Okay? Any comments before we go to Melville? Okay. Do you have a question, Doug? Or come? I love that poem. Yeah, I do yeah, too. The angels and then the final lines. The heaviest nuns walk in a pure floating of dark habits, keeping their difficult back. It's just so layered. So what? Layered. Layered, yeah. It is. It's really Yeah. Okay. Let's start. See if I can... 
I'm a little bit nervous about this book because to me it's so extraordinary. I want to start tonight by um, going back to something Robert Bob said. And I want everybody's attention on this pretty seriously because it's because um, you know how serious I am about this. Bob said last week um, in the sincerity that it brings to all of his comments. Um, I'm reading the same story. Where, <laughs> where are you getting all of this? You know, and, and we're looking at the same thing. And I'm not sure that I'm ever going to do justice to that question, Bob, honestly. But let me, let me I want to come back at that in two different ways t tonight. Um, I want to, I'd like to open tonight with a comment, a reflection on Bob's question, because I think it's so important. You know, it's one that I've been trying to address from the very beginning, and we, I'm still addressing it. And then a couple of general background comments on Billy Budd, which I think are really important to this work. But the first one, um, you know that, I, I'm assuming that you know by now, if you didn't before, that if you Googled any of the works that we've been reading and went online, you'd find a whole variety of interpretations of any work. If you, if you Googled Billy Budd, you'd find a long list of critics offering their interpretations of the work. Um, I'm, gonna go, I'm gonna be personal for a minute, just um, for a second to try to make my point here. When Suzanne and I were sitting down for dinner, I was trying to recall something that came to my mind, I think yesterday or the day before when I was thinking about Billy Budd. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that I don't have this wrong. It seems to me that the first time I read Billy Budd was at JC when I was picking myself up after failing school and was taking a lit class and somebody was dealing with Billy Budd and laying out the allegorical levels of it. And I was thinking about that today because it's so easy for people in high school teachers, high school teachers, to treat Billy Budd allegorically. So Captain Veer, the word Veer means truth. And I want to hang on that for a moment. It came to me when I was thinking about it that, I don't know what it was, 40, 45 years ago, whenever it was, in a class, that we were, I think we were doing Billy Budd, and the guy, I think, the teacher that I'm, I'm, I may have it wrong, said, Veer means truth. That moment stayed with me because it made me, I didn't grow up with literature, and I've told you this, it came to me really late. Um, I didn't grow up reading or writing. But I was at a JC, picking up my grades, um, to qualify to get on to Berkeley and the teacher had said Veer means truth and I can remember the sort of talismanic nature of that moment magical but for somebody to say that meant truth when I was looking at a word and it said Veer not truth meant there are other levels of meaning and I wasn't aware of them but the minute he said truth I thought I'm going back, I'm trying to put things together, I don't think any of it was conscious. That meant there was a whole different level of meaning to this work that I didn't see. Because if he could say, Veer means truth, and I didn't see it, it meant there were other things that I didn't see. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating, I'm just not exaggerating here. Those moments, this moment, I'm gonna, another one like it, those moments were profound for me. It was, it was like magic. That there was something there right in front of me and I didn't see it. And it was there to see. And when the teacher said truth, 
it suddenly makes sense of a lot of the story that I had not made a sense of before. If Veer's truth, then we have to look at what happens with Billy Budd, you know, in the trial scene and the execution differently. If we're going to argue with it, we have to at least include in our argument, this guy represents truth. I had the same experience the first time I read Scarlet Letter, and I've told you about it. First time I read Scarlet Letter, I cried. I got teary at the end of it. I, I didn't know a book could do that. And I can remember my reading on the first page having a similar experience. I'm reading along a Scarlet Letter. It's all in a language that a sixth grader could understand. There's nothing difficult about Hawthorne's language. It's clear, it's precise, it makes you see things. And then suddenly I come across this, across this word ignominy. And it had the same effect. I'm reading along, thinking I'm at home here, I can understand it, and suddenly Hawthorne introduces this word ignominy. I had no idea what the word meant. I had to go to a dictionary and look it up. But it had a memorable effect on me. It just marked me. A, a two page later, he uses the same word. Those experiences made me aware that there was something going on in literature that I hadn't seen as a kid. That, that words suddenly introduce you. They help you see things without which you can't see. Think of Helen, if that's not clear, think of Helen Keller. She grew up without any ability to use words. Suddenly her, her friend makes it possible for her to use words and suddenly she begins to see the world because words give us the means by which to see things that aren't there until we have words to name them. Yeah? So I came across the word ignominy and God, it, it was like magic occurring again. So um, to Bob's question, um, there are things going on in literature that, um, that are there that we don't always see. One of the reasons that I love it, and you know, is that very often it makes us aware of things that are right, stones that don't talk, that speak. Remember in the movie Departures, the boy picks up that stone and he talks about the ways in which in the Japanese tradition, stones carried messages. And we knew from the story that the stone was originally rough and something happens to it because it's there in the father's hand when he's dead. The father's holding on to it in his death. That's how much it means to him. When his son opens his hands, he takes out the stone and it takes him back to that moment when he began to hate his father. And the stone is smooth. And it's like his heart changes. Stones speak. Um, so there's something going on in literature that's hard to get at. And let me give you now two principles that I hope will help, you know, with, with Bob's question. Um, you know that it's been a big point for me to try to hold myself to the text. I don't want to go out. I, I hate, I hate what modern ideologues are doing to literature. Freudian, feminist, Marxist, because they, begin, they begin with a theory and then impose that. Catholics do that a lot. They've got a notion in their head and they're gonna put it on a story. Instead of being open, which is another way of, of raising this question, are we really open to life? Do we go through the world really open to what's in front of us? I think it's a hard thing to do. 
But every story brings us to that point. Are we really open? Or are we imposing our own ideas on the story and trying to make it into something that fits us? You know, seriously, I take that. And so I, I mean, that's why I left Bob last. At the end of this class, if you think I've done something that doesn't square with the text, push back. <laughs> push back. Ask a question. Because you, you, you know how much I like. I mean, to me, it's the best time of learning when we, you know, when we talk about these things. But I want to give you two examples of, of, that might illustrate this moment, and both of them are sort of amazing. Is everybody following? We don't understand a work of literature until we understand the whole. Because it's the whole that explains every part. When the first time we're going through the Iliad, there's no way to understand that work because we don't know the whole. It's only when we put it together and see the whole that we can go back and see the whole in each of those parts. Because suddenly the parts become more significant, right? Because we see that more is going on in them than we saw the first time we read it. That should be self-evident, even, even if it's only a theory. Yeah? That means we have to read. We have to read. We can't get around, or we're stuck in... That's a little bit like saying somebody to somebody, um, thinking about the Eucharist will make it okay. That's Protestant. In commemoration, it's absolutely, it's absolutely essential that we participate in it. We have to give ourselves or it loses its meaning. I've said this from the beginning, even if you can't read, come to class, but my push is try to do everything you can because it'll make a difference in your knowledge, the way, the way you see things. We don't understand a work until we know the whole. And then we can begin to see how that whole plays out in particular parts. And then we see that there's a significance to those parts that we didn't see when we were going to the first time. We couldn't. We didn't see the whole. Let me give us an example. You've all seen an arched bridge. Yeah? Everybody, take a look at an arched bridge. Will anything in your... Immediately, immediately... Will anything immediately come to your senses that will explain how an arched bridge can hang in the air? It's not hung by suspension, the way most suspension, most suspension bridges are. Is everybody following me? You look at a bridge and it's hanging there. So there's nothing immediately present to your senses that will explain it. In a, in a hanging bridge, you would because there are things holding it up, right? What is it that holds a hang, an arched bridge in the air? It's a principle of physics. Is it present visibly to your senses? No. But if your senses were working, you'd go from your senses to a theory, an idea, to explain it. That's why they could put it together. Or they, could, they had to have an understanding that gravity drags you down. So that if you worked against it, you could actually use gravity to make a bridge. To hold it in place. Right? Is everybody following? So... Looking at that arch bridge can leave you in amazement, but it can also say, what's the whole of it? What holds it together? To see it, you have to go to an idea that explains the whole. I know that's a little bit of a stretch, but I hope you see the point that I'm trying to illustrate here. It won't be until you see the whole of it, you begin to see how those parts of it, the blocks, the stones, fit together, how they're working with the principle of gravity to go against it, to actually hold them in place. It's not until we see a whole 
And the, the, I mean, the only support I can give what I'm saying is that I've been working at this a lot longer than you guys have. You know, so, um, you know, I've, I mean, I've been working at it a long time. So there are things about these things that I can see that I never saw in the beginning. Didn't get close to them. The second um, thing that I want you to just consider when you're thinking about literature, at the very back of our notes, you'll find it. G.K. Chesterton, who's probably, he's the man who brought me into the church. His, well, you, you know, I told this when we did orthodoxy together, that we, we did it. Um, orthodoxy is the work that really brought me into the church. He's one of my favorite writers. I, I, he's on my bedside. I mean, I still read him. He's just... He, he keeps your mind alive. He's always showing you something new, but he does it in a very genial, humorous way. It's not a, it's not a dry, academic, way, pedantic way. He's just, he's a journalist. Um, in his introduction to Charles Dickens' Pickwick Papers, he, he writes a, a lengthy introduction, which, and in part of it, he, he makes a statement that to me has always um, staggered me, absolutely staggered me. And I'm gonna read part of it here, okay, at the very end of our notes. This is Chesterton from his introduction to Charles Dickens' Pickwick Papers. It was Dickens' first masterpiece. It's what established Dickens as a great writer. So, did I get an aff was that an affirmation, Chuck? Did I hear you or somebody? I love, I love it, but you just mentioned Pickwick Papers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, However this may be um, in the matter of religion and philosophy, it can be said with little exaggeration. Ch Chesterton's addressing the um, naysayers, the Bible naysayers who's saying, um, the Bible needs to be cleaned up. It's got all these wrong things in it. That is, they want to take away everything miraculous and, and make it fit their common sense. They're, they're secular readers doing what they do in the way they read literature. So he's answering them, but in the middle of this in this piece that he introduces that way, he says this, however this may be in the matter of religion and philosophy, it can be said with little exaggeration that this truth is the very key of literature. The difference between construction and creation is exactly this, that a thing constructed can only be loved after it's constructed, but a thing created is loved before it exists as the mother can love the unborn child. In creative art, the essence of a book exists before the book or before even the details or main features of the book. The author enjoys it and lives in it with a kind of prophetic rapture. He wishes to write a comic story before he has thought of a single comic incident. He desires to write a sad story before he's thought of anything sad. He knows the atmosphere before he knows anything. There's a low priggish maxim sometimes uttered by men so frivolous as to take humor seriously. Humor should be taken lightly, that's what it is. Um, a maxim that a man should not laugh at his own jokes. But the great artist not only laughs at his own jokes, he laughs at his own jokes before he has made them. In the case of a man really humorous, we can see humor in his eye before he has the thought of any amusing words at all. So the creative writer laughs at his comedy before he creates it he has tears for his tragedy before he knows it. Go up above to the first paragraph. The idea he's dealing with is this. To many modern people, it would sound, he's, he's addressing these, these, you know, these naysayers about the Bible. To many modern people, it would sound like saying, 
to say that light existed. Here, so what he's talking about, remember in creation, when in the, in the very beginning in the Bible, the very beginning is, um, in the beginning God created light. That's the first act of creation. And then a couple of days later it says, he, he created the moon and the sun. And Chester is saying, these idiots, if they're really as, criti as, you know, as critical minded as they think they are, why aren't they dealing with that? Because there's a real problem. How can you have light when there's no sun yet? That's, it. That's in Bible. So he's saying, to many modern people it would sound like saying the foliage existed before the first leaf. It would sound like saying the childhood existed before a baby was born. The idea, as I've said, alien to most modern thought, and like many other ideas, which are often alien to most modern thought, it's a very subtle and a very sound idea. Whatever be the meaning of the passage in the actual primeval poem, that's Genesis, there is a very real metaphysical meaning in the idea that light existed before the sun and stars. It's not barbaric, it's rather platonic. The idea existed for any of the machinery which made manifest the idea. Justice existed when there was no need of judges, and mercy existed before any man was oppressed. Now let me stop before I go back to Luther. What is Chester insane? Somebody just make this clear. Because ordinarily we're going to say, he, how stupid, that's not so. Um, a flower, a leaf, does not exist before a stem. And he's saying, <laughs> leaves exist before stems. I mean, it's, it's as stupid as that. It's um, like saying that childhood exists before a child's born. Somebody make sense of that here. According to our Catholic faith, some, you all should be jumping on this. Oh, sorry, Connie or, or Matt, somebody? Well, it's, it's summed up in the phrase, in the beginning was the word. Flesh that word out, Chuck. <laughs> Flesh that word out. Make it incarnate. Explain it. Well, it's, it, it's, it's the divine logos. And there, but the thing is, it's conceived as a... Well, you can go back to the theory of forms, I suppose. If you want, the, the, the idea of the thing, the conception of the thing is primary. Right. So there could be light before you actually bring an instance of light into existence. Yeah. Is everybody clear? <coughs> Hold on. Huh? Yeah. If that's not obvious, give this some thought. Did creation precede the existence of the Trinity? No. The Trinity existed before anything, right? God existed with the Son and the Spirit and the Trinity, right? So did they exist in darkness or in light? It had to be it had to be luminous translucent light because they are light itself. Um, they could have done nothing. They are light giving, they are being, they are. It's light existed. So light already existed in the Trinity. It existed in God. It's one th I mean we can almost say it like this because, because what happens when we look directly at the sun? Blinded, right? If if we can't look at the sun without being blinded. How can we look at God when his light will be infinitely greater than the light the sun gives? We won't get to God until we 
become better human beings and see and you know whatever's going to transpire before we get there. But it, it, God existed in unapproachable light. So there had to be light before there was ever anything like the light he created with the sun and the moon. I'm not, I'm not, and I'm going to, I mean, I'm making a confession here. I'm not sure that I understand those opening days when he says, um, let there be light. That's the first, let there be. But it suggests that there was some light that he created that's in the world that's a part of creation. Some people think that may refer to the angels, the angelic order, and whatever it was. But there had to be that light before there could be anything to come out of it. Chuck was using the word an idea. If I can take a homey example, you all know from your high school days or college days, when you were assigned an essay to do a paper on an idea, you'd, you'd meditate and you'd have some rough idea in your heart. Let me be metaphorical for a moment. Light was going on in your mind, but it was rough and not clear, obscure, dark, and as you worked on the paper, didn't as a, that is, as you incarnated it, it became clear to you that um, you were getting close to the thing you wanted to say, but there were still some rough edges and you had to clean some things up. And then finally you'd get to a point where you say, that's it. I've said what I wanted to say. That is, whatever that thing was in my, that idea, I don't like the word idea, but that light, that concept, idea, whatever it was, preceded the essay, the incarnated form. That's absolutely platonic. Um, so there is this whole, you know, it's present in the Arch Bridge. Um, I, I was hinting at, remember every time we did Hemingway, I said, you can't look at a Hemingway story without finding perfection. Where did that perfection come from? Let me put it more generally, before a writer or an artist, let it be a sculptor, let it be a potter, let it be a painter, it doesn't matter, a musician. Where does that piece come from that that person makes? And how can it have the peace the, or the order, the harmony, the beauty, all expressed in the wholeness of it, the, the clarity, the light of it, if it wasn't there in him in some form? And where does that light come from? St. Augustine would say it, it comes from God. That's why I kept asking the question. The irony of Hemingway is he keeps denying God, but he keeps creating these Short stories that deny nada, or nada who are nada, you know, deny God. And yet, they are flawless in their form. So, wait, one, one finish. So, at the heart of every work of art is a form. It's not visible except in that work. But every good critic tries to get to that to unify the whole thing. So you can say, this is what it's about. Whether it's Old Man of the Sea, Clean, Well-Lighted Place, and it doesn't, Pride and Prejudice, it doesn't matter. Every good reader is trying to get that hole to understand what that, so when you put the book down and you go, wow, you finish Pride and Prejudice and you say, what a wonderful book. Where did that wonder come from? It didn't come from a passage or two, it came from the whole thing. Can you describe that hole? Hard to do. But you know the effect, because when you get out, you go, wow. Wow. Amazing that she could have done that. So, I, I probably made it more obscure than it was, but, but um, that's another way of saying that when we're reading literature, 
on the surface it seems this is an easy story this is what's going on but like um, veer truth or um, what's my word ignominy you know you look at these words and, and it's like magic and suddenly a whole another world it, it helps so in, in Hawthorne he's showing us the world and in Moby Dick, Melville is showing us nothing romantic the way he did in, or I'm sorry, in Billy Budd. In Billy Budd, Melville's showing us nothing romantic, a whale, you know, jumping, getting out of the ship. Everything is, in fact, he says that twice in the book. He's not writing a romance. He's being true to fact. And to be truthful means things are awkward and, you know, they don't always fit. Those are his words. But he's trying to be faithful to fact. So he's showing us the story. The question is, what's he revealing in this incident involving Billy Budd? What's the meaning of it? What's he showing us that other writers didn't? And my suggestion is he's showing us something that's so amazing and, so, and speaks so directly to our time um, that I'm sorry I didn't say we're going to take a couple weeks on this. But anyway, Bob, that's, you know, literature's, it seems like it's just a story, and it is. It's amazing, like the stones in, you know, Departures. It's, you know, the, the guy's carrying a stone in his hand. So what? But when you put it together with a whole, the difficulties, the estrangement he felt with his father, you know, that they hadn't talked for ages, and um, he comes and finds that these guys are, are preparing his father's body in a way that he wouldn't, and he take, he's angry, he takes over, he, because th the way they're doing it is so disrespectful. And he wants to show the respect to his father's body that he's learned to show for the dead. When he starts to do that and prepares the body and he opens his dad's hand, there's that stone. And who can read it and not say, holy cow, here's a meaning. And suddenly that stone puts parts of that story together and makes us feel things that we, who would feel it if you just picked up that passage and said, he's got a stone in his hand. Put it in the light of the whole story, it can bring you to tears. Um, so, literature is a mysterious thing, but there's an amazing light that it can show if we're reading good stories, um, if we can put it together. You know, so, sorry, Karen, you go. Come on, you had something. I was just asking the question about Melville and his beliefs. About what, Melville? Yeah. Go ahead, say it. Because he said he didn't believe. And, but his stories show that he showed so much of Christianity. You're talking about Hemingway? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, I'm doing it all the time, so. So I was just wondering if that was actually his, did he really not? Well, that's why I thought old, I mean, one of the reasons that I saved Old Man of the Sea till the end, and it was one of the points of Old Man of the Sea, that, that Hemingway does something in that story that we didn't see in the three short stories, that in Old Man of the Sea, um, we're not left with nothingness. He, um, Santiago loses everything, but by the way it's put together, we're meant to, I think we're meant to feel that there's a transcendent element to the soul that doesn't depend on possessions or acquisitions or money or power. It's all the things that everybody else judges their life by. 
we come back and we see a really heroic man, even though he has nothing to show for it. And it's one of the reasons for reading it. I mean, it, it gets so Christ, close to Christ. But in his short stories, he's not a, not a, not a. Yeah. Writing about people that didn't believe in any. Yeah. Didn't believe Christianity. Yeah. But I didn't know that. I kind of assumed that he did because he was writing that. But as Suzanne, yeah. Early on, it's kind of shown that he wasn't. Yeah. I, Hemingway is such a problem to me personally. Is a somebody who's you know I'm not a Hemingway scholar, but. Um, you know that in his second marriage, he marries a Catholic and converts. What that means personally, I mean, you, one of the things I would hope we would all take away, and certainly going to happen here with Billy Budd, how easy, with all the readings that we've done, how well do we read human souls? You know, and, and, and don't we, isn't this a common experience that so often, particularly when we get homilies or readings from Christ, um, we become aware that we're, make, we're making judgments about the people when we when we're asked to be, take real care, and I, I think Christ, Christ himself says, make judgments. But he says, wait till you remove the thing and then do it. But we're, under, we're, we're to understand that the judgment we make should be in accord with God's judgment. How well do we read God in any moment? You know, we're, so it's a tough thing. I, and speaking personally now, off the record, it's hard for me to believe that at some depth he didn't, he was raised Christian, but it was a fundamentalist sort of Christianity that was utopian and that he carried something of that in him, but, but his own idea as a man um, was um, defined by an honor code so, um, so fastidious, so heroic, um, that anything that didn't match up to it was tragic. I've tried to make that point. All of his stories are about wounds and losses and the cost of it. It's not until old man that he breaks out of that and can deal with the details of a guy breaking an oar or picking up a rope or you know putting a sail up or every one of his stories. Here, put it this way. Every one of his stories focuses on a wound or a loss. Why? Pick up Jane Austen. I'm not kidding right now. Pick up Jane Austen. For 300 pages, will you find her preoccupied with wounds or losses? Absolutely. Or Melville. But Jane Austen, for sure. Hemingway, in, in a, my reading, Hemingway grew up in a world in which God ceased to exist, but he had this sense that there was some dignity to man, so that man had to show some, what he called grace under pressure, that he sort of held on to something while everything was falling apart and he tried to depict that. But in his vision, it always centers on a loss or a wound to show that um, real heroism in Hemingway's world is almost impossible. It's, you, can't, you cannot find a fulfilled relationship in a Hemingway world. Men and women don't come together. And, and where there are relationships, it's going it's largely the case that the men die. Love, love does not exist. Read Jane Austen. Love is the most important thing. We're in a very different world. Um, and it's important to see that whatever we say of Hemingway, he grew up in a world 
um, very different from Jane Austen's. So the way that he looked at things is very different from the way, say, she did. Let me stop because I want to get on to Billy Budd. We may have to. I don't want to carry this. So any quick questions or quick questions? Yeah. The only thing I'd add to that is to be careful. I've, you've heard me ask you all to be guarded. Um, you can never reduce a, a, a work of. Remember the quote that I just read from Chesterton, you know, when you're thinking, or the bridge. Um, if you if you read um, Sartre or Camus, Hemingway, or if we're going to do Faulkner, you know. The tendency of the modern world is to reduce everything to psychology, psychological terms. I mean, really, it's reductive. It reduces things to psychology. And we think we, we have more control because we, the, the, the principle of the modern world is the more we know something, the more control we have it. That's just a way of the modern world. And it's implied in all Marx and Freud and the feminist. And There's a danger in that because every work of art is, it can't be reduced to that person's psychology. Something as creative is going on that's beyond that. And we have to learn to see that thing, whatever it is, clean, well-lighted place, Faulkner's Go Down Moses, whatever, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Um, but one of the things to hold on to when you're thinking about the influence um, of, of, of a, you know, in an a artist's personal life growing up, um, there's always something more than what goes on in the family. If you look at, if you look at any, I mean, since Plato and Aristotle and they made it clear, Freud wants to reduce it to the family. That's Freud. And it's, that's why it's called reductive. I mean, it, it, it finally you just, I, I mean, I get annoyed after a while. It's just, it's just, there's so much he's missing. We know that there's something more than Hemingway's family going on in his writing, that he lived in an age in which people no longer believed in God, so when you read, when you, if you read Hemingway and then you read Camus' The Stranger or The Plague, Camus got a um, Nobel Prize. Um, Faulkner, but put Hemingway and Camus because they're contemporaries and they're so much alike in lots of ways. You realize that they're, 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 whatever happened in their childhood, there's some way in which they transcend it. Remember what I've said, that, 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 this is one of the great themes of Pericles. 
Um, and it should be for a Catholic. I tried to really impress that. One of the great things about Pericles is Pericles is not a man of his age. His travels take him beyond. One of the worst things that you can say about a person is that, that in the modern world does it all the time is he's a product of his age and more narrowly his family. There's so much more going on in a family that shapes a family for goodness sake. Whatever disorders they bring to their kids. If a family grows up in a certain time or with Jewish, Greek, Irish, there's something more going on that's affecting the family. So we have to take real care when we're reading writers, particularly in an age given to psychology, because there's much more going on. And if you read all these modern writers, I mean, it's one of the reasons we did what we went from Dostoevsky to Hemingway, and we're going to go to the modern, the women, and you're going to see we're in a different age from the age we just left. Um, um, I'm not going to go into the personal biography of each of the women we read, but you're going to find yourself reading, doing what we're doing with Hemingway. They're not just bound by their family wounds. There's so much more going on in an artist in what they bring to it. But, you, but while you say that, I mean, clearly all artists are you know, affected by their families. They're also affected by something larger that their families are affected by. There's more going on in the world. Our attention is on the work. What's going on? What are we learning? What did they give us? Okay. Let's get to Melville. Here's my opening comment after my opening. Um, here's what I want everybody to give some thought to. Um, I'm, I'm going to just try to go quickly through some of the passages. We're only going to do this in one night. And right now I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm disconsolate. I'm not going to be consoled on this at all. Um, here. It's, it's 15 minutes, 10, 15. Anyway, here, come on. Um, the background, the background of Billy Budd. Melville published Moby Dick in 1851. You all know that. That was his masterpiece. He wrote a number of lengthy romance novels about whaling, and he became popular. When he wrote Moby Dick, um, the public turned against him. They thought it was immature and ridiculous and romantic, too unreal. And he had to live with a certain disillusionment after that. This is not his family, this is public. And this is the world. Um, he, he stopped writing narrative. And he wrote a long series of poems. This, these are all in my notes. I'm gonna, if all of you would read my notes when you go home today, tomorrow, the next day, sometime, read them because they're pretty thorough. He wrote a, um, a, long, a large collection of poems on the Civil War because he was really disturbed about it. Think about Melville. It seems to me he put to rest one of the evils of the Protestant mind in Moby Dick, the, the Calvinistic way of looking at the, the inhumanness of it. He put that to rest. It was such an extraordinary work. He looked at the Civil War with wonder because he was aware that men on both sides were fighting for something they believed in and they were dying. And here's one of the things I want to offer you before we start. When we read Moby, or Billy Budd, we're going to see that there's two different positions on, on what's going on. 
a war is underway. Um, Britain and France are at war. Um, they've been at war for some time now. Um, Britain was late coming into the war, and historians, I think, generally agree that if Britain had come in when the other nations were being defeated by the French, they would have defeated the French, and what would have happened is that Europe would have returned to monarchies. Because remember when we did Dostoevsky, I said, in the 19th century, um, all the nations were at war, almost every nation in Europe, and every one of them were fighting against a monarchical form of government for these new constitutional forms of government. And the thinkers behind them were largely social contract thinkers, Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau were the dominant ones. So here's the beauty of doing this now. I wish we'd done it after um, Dostoevsky, but when we did Dostoevsky, Brothers Karamazov, we were aware that all of these Enlightenment ideas were coming into Russia and destroying it. Old Mother Russia, this Christian world, was being destroyed. People coming into this with these new Enlightenment ideas thought these Christians were superstitious and uneducated superstitious. Now, right now, we're going to see why. We're going to go back to exactly what was going on that was affecting what Dostoevsky was writing about, even though we didn't go there. So this is a wonderful occasion to fill that out. France has been at war. It's threatening England. England is monarchical. You all know that England decided against the French Revolution. It's the only co major country that held onto a monarchical form of government. America had already broken. It was democratic. France was breaking. It was at war with countries. They, they had to defeat England because England was the dominant power. France was powerful in land, England was powerful, powerful by sea. So the context of this story of Billy Budd is that war. All the nations in, in Europe are at war over these issues. Now, interesting, here, this is so amazing. Um, we talk about cancel culture today, how utopian the left is. When um, Bonaparte was going to war with Europe, he was going to war over what everybody perceived at that time, most popular people, as wrongs of the ancient regimes. There were all these ancient regimes that had created these um, awful conditions, mostly for the poor, that were inhuman. So all of them were fighting for new constitutional forms of government to get rid of monarchies. Um, so what's going on between England and France is not small at all. A war is going on, that's the context. It's um, 1870, 1979, what was the, is it 19, 19, 1778, 1797 is when this story takes place, 1797, the end of the 18th century. Um, that's the context. Okay, is everybody clear? Europe is moving towards modernity. Um, if, um, if England defeats France, it'll keep its regime. If France defeats England, it will return to its monarchy. The name of the ship, remember when, when at the end it um, describes what happens to Vere? The St. Louis, named after a king, the St. Louis is changed to the atheist. Because it's understood in this 
new modern world that if, if Napoleon or these Enlightenment ideas succeed, this old traditional way of life under monarchies will be gone. So what's at issue is fundamental to our understanding of the nature of man, whether he can rule himself or he should be ruled, okay? On the opening, the very first page, tearing down of ancient regime, the estates general, three orders. The three orders, clergy, nobility, commoners, they were all under the king. The whole effort of the French Revolution is um, liberté, égalité, fraternité, ou la mort, or death. Liberty, equality, fraternity, or... <laughs> Boy, the, the, the motto of, of uh, New Hampshire is live free or die, isn't it? What is live free? Huh? Yeah, it, live free or die. Yeah, live free or die. Is everybody following? So it's um, 1797. It's towards the end of the war. There's still years ahead of it. Um, and Veer will die shortly after this episode. But when it begins, conditions are bad enough that the um, belly potent has to increase its staff so they impound soldiers. So they take soldiers from the... Um, um, yeah, the, what's the Thomas Paine's Rights of Man, Rights of Man thanks so, so think, there's that allegorical element, Billy Budd is, oh and by the way he, so the Rights of Man was in a mess was chaotic, Billy Budd comes aboard and, he, and just his nature, because he's an image of natural goodness he brings an order to that ship the captain doesn't want to let him go Claggart immediately wants him, he's, and he's the only one that they conscript. So the, 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 the story opens with Billy being conscripted, leaving the rights of man and going to the belly pot, which means particularly powerful. So from the rights of man, we're going to a context in which everything is determined by power. By power. Now, I just want to go to this end. Um, and then I want to go through some passages to get you all there. You all know what happens. I hope you read, I really hope you guys read this. It deserves to be read, it really does. It's short, it's not gonna take much. It really deserves to be read. Billy um, is conscripted. Claggart um, immediately hates him um, because of Billy's natural goodness. So we see in Claggart is an envy that somebody has a goodness greater than his own. We, hold on, we are back in the Iliad. What's the problem at the center of the Iliad? Ach Achilles has this extraordinary natural power that no other Achaean does, right? Agamemnon has his power by convention. He's the king. When he takes Achilles' booty, his woman, Achilles gets furious. Because the king is using his arbitrary power to take something that Achilles thought he earned. We know that problem. It happens at the workspace all the time. None of us can escape it. That problem is fundamental to our lives. Bosses are always doing something that dishonors us. Because they think they know better. What happens when you get... Sorry? Sorry, I did What's the matter? Go ahead, sorry. Melville spends quite a bit of ink on describing natural depravity and, yeah. and setting, setting Claggart in the class apart from 
the other men that reason he's more of a, a, a Iago uh, type to me. Yeah. And a word and a word obviously he's a sociopath, but he didn't have the words for the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I yes. There's there's past it's not simple envy. He's got a, what what Melville calls his natural depravity. Yeah. But it takes the form of an envy. He just he, um, there are passages in there where actually Melville's um, alluding to Calvin. He does it a couple of times. So he's, he, he raises the question of natural depravity. He's, he differs from, it's really interesting to see what happens after he writes my video. He differs from Calvin in believing, in seeming to believe like Plato that some people are naturally depraved. It's just a question mark. But he doesn't agree with Calvin that all people are, have have that because over and over and over again he makes clear that there's an, in, an inherent goodness in some people and he makes it clear that it's particular that some people are more given to evil some people are more given to good Billy has an innocence that's unusual to him he, he calls him a, a pearl likens him to a diamond um, over and over again he, the, the real and by the way he likens him to a Catholic priest at one point he says he's a peacemaker when he boarded when he came aboard the rights of man and things were in such turmoil there he had the effect of a Catholic priest he was a peacemaker he brought peace wherever he goes Claggart is envious he, he is there's an evil instinct in him and he wants to do away I'm trying to summarize because I want to I just want to get to this point so it all builds to that, and we're watching Claggart um, plot to undo Billy. So he connives with a number of people to get Billy involved in what seems to be um, um, a mutiny um, when it's not. And you know, and, so, and you know, Billy. He's innocent. He's inexperienced. He's not worldly. He doesn't know what to do with these things. He doesn't tell on anybody when it happens. He doesn't want to cop out. He's an, he's an honorable young kid. But to reinforce the point, go back to the Iliad because the fundamental problem was there was two different orders of power and authority. Veer's got one, Claggart's got one, Billy is innocent. We have to see him in terms of whatever power or goodness he has, in terms of his natural goodness. K keep in mind Dimsdale when he left the forest. Okay, What's going to happen when that innocent goodness is tested. It's going to be interesting. We'll come to it in a minute. But the point I want to get to here is, you know what'll happen. Um, Claggart will do what he can to discredit Billy, and finally he goes to Veer to accuse him of mutiny. And Veer is shrewd enough to know that it's not true. He, he, um, he doubts Claggart and he trusts Billy. So he brings Billy and Claggart together, and Claggart makes his accusation in Billy's presence. It's a, it's a, I'm going to read it in a minute, because it's powerful. And you know what happens. Billy can't find the words to answer. He's overcome with rage and strikes out at Claggart. Not in meaning to kill him, but he's young, he's strong, his blow is fatal. Um, Claggart dies. They convene a summary court and um, dis um, discuss the matter. Um, Veer has the final word on it, and the decision is that Billy committed a crime. The issue here, and it's absolutely crucial to keep this in mind, there have been two mutinies in the English Navy. One at Spit, Spithead and the other at... <coughs> Sorry. One at Knorr, recently, and both put down 
They're different measures, but two mutinies. So mutinies have just gone on. The, 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 there's a real threat um, in France. Um, they're conquering Europe. Um, they know that they've got to put an end to this. Um, so the context is they're at war. Anytime um, somebody of a lesser rank strikes or kills an officer of a higher rank, particularly at a time of war, it's considered an act of mutiny. That's the law. What Billy does meets that requirement. So when they try him, it's for mutiny in this context. Veer does not want to kill. He does not want to see Billy executed. I'm, I'm going to go through it. I'm just, I want to get to this. And you know what happens. He's convicted and then he's hung. Um, here's where I wanted to go and then I want to get back to the book. I want to get to the book. When Billy's hung, um, the, the horizon is described in a certain way. It's, a, it's amazing. It's like a benediction. When he rises to the spar to hang, um, his last words before he's hung are, God bless Captain Veer. He's not whining. He's not resenting. He's not saying, poor me, I don't deserve this. I'm saying that because I'm assuming most of us know that. When somebody commits an injury against us or for lots of us, the impulse is strike back. Billy's response um, is to say, God bless Captain Ver. When he speaks the word, the crew repeats the words. It's like a liturgical response. There's a benediction. Um, the foul go to the body. They don't get to it. And afterwards, a couple of days later, when the um, purser and the doctor talk, the purser is saying, um, um, can you explain this? When, when most people are hung, they release their bowels, right? Their bowels release. Um, that didn't happen with Billy. And the doctor, who's a scientist, can't deal with it and walks away. But we're left with this remarkable thing fact that Billy's hung he says God bless he accepts his death there's no bowel loosening the sky the atmosphere changes a number of phenomenal things happen and the purser is aware of them the scientist denies them we'll see that shortly after his death Veer's gonna die and a newspaper bulletin comes out, the, the official newspaper of the English. So in some sense, it's, it's like NBC or CNS, NBC, or it's the official you know, um, news outlet for the country, explaining that one of the officers in the British fleet um, was attempting to hold off a mutiny by this inferior officer. So the officer was martyred. He was martyred. And the guy was an, um, who would actually was described as carrying a knife and wanting to kill the knife, um, was an insurrectionist. Now hold on to that context because I want to come back to it, okay? So the, new, the official report on what happened is exactly the reverse of what it should be. What are, um, what are Claggart's initials? Say it again, Mary. JC. JC. 
hold on to all of these things if you can for a bit. Is everybody following? So we've got a newspaper re report. This is the official statement now. This guy died in defense of his majesty, the king and queen. He was martyred. He did this great thing. And this lower classman, this underclassman, was a vicious mutiny, mutineer. Okay? And they try to say he's not even English. Right. Thanks. <laughs> that he's an alien. So he's um, worse, or the, or the crime is worse because it was committed against one of his majesty's officers. So hold on to that context, okay? Now, and the last thing to hold on to remember, it's at a time of war, there are passages in the book in which Melville looks at war clearly as an evil, it's a necessary evil that has to be done, but it's an evil, it's a bad thing. So we've got the context here of good and bad going against each other, two nations. I mean, you can compare today, find two nations going at war with each other, wherever you want to go. But what's at issue is, is not just those two nations, it's what happens to this individual guy who on the surface seems to be innocent, undeserving of the punishment he gets, and yet in, in the context of the story, um, unnecessary punishment. How are we to look at Billy Budd's death? That's my story, okay. I, I wanna go through some passages to just get us in the book, but those are, those are our concerns here, okay? Um, I can't count on everybody having, if you go through my notes, you'll see that where I've made quotes, I've referred to both the chapter and the page number, so you should have both. Um, but I'm not gonna be able to give them to you always because um, at the end in my readings, I don't have them. I just got the page numbers. On page 45, in, in chapter 19, early on in 19, Billy Budd has, um, has been called to confront his accuser. Claggart's already accused him, Veer's doubting Claggart. He wants to bring the two of them together um, to see what happens. Page 46. Not at first did Billy take it in. When he did, the rose tan of his cheek looked struck as by white leprosy. He stood like one impaled. Um, Claggart looks at him in an ungodly way. And he, does, he can't say anything. He can't speak. Remember, this, this, is what's, this is one of the most amazing things about this book to me. Billy can't speak. It's one of the signs of his innocence, his lack of worldliness. He doesn't know how to deal with it. He can't put words. What does it mean when we don't have words to deal with reality? Take words away. Remember what I have said earlier about words. Words connect us to the world. It's only because of them we can see the world. Take them away, what do we do with it? Billy can't speak, and finally Veer, who's frustrated, says, Speak, man, said the Captain Veer, to the transfixed one, struck by his aspect even more than claggard. Speak, defend yourself, which appeal caused but a strange, dumb gesturing and gurgling in Billy. Amazement at such an accusation so suddenly sprung on, ex on inexperience, non-age. This, and it may be, horror of the accuser's eyes serving to bring out his lurking defect, and in this instance, for the time, intensifying it into a convulsed tongue tie, while the intent head and attire form straining forward in an agony of ineffectual eagerness to obey the injunction to speak and defend himself, gave an expression to the face like that of a condemned vessel priestess. 
That is a sacrifice. It's a sacrificial lamb. And you know um, that finally he can't speak and he strikes out and hits um, Claggart. There's no hurry, go down a few lines. There's no hurry, my boy, take your time, take your time. Contrary to the effect intended, these words so fatherly in tone, doubtless touching Billy's heart to the quick, prompted yet more violent efforts at utterance, efforts soon ending for the time in confirming the paralysis and bringing to his face an expression was, which was as a crucifixion to behold. The next instant, quick as the flame from discharged cannon at night, his right arm shot out and Claggart dropped um, down. Um, page 48, just at the end of chapter 19, Captain Veer was now again motionless, standing absorbed because he brings the doctor in to confirm Claggart's state. Again, um, starting, he exclaimed, struck dead by an angel of God, yet the angel must hang. Um, now you know, Billy's likened in the next couple of passages, chapters, to a barbarian, an adolescent. His, his youthful inexperience is underlined again and again and again. Veer calls a summary court um, um, with three men, the lieutenant, a, um, a marine, and, a, and another man. And they make arguments, um, they question Billy, hold on. Um, they question Billy um, to, so that they can say he's been um, um, justly tried on page 52, my 52. It's in, the, it's in the middle of, it's in the middle of 21. Um, one of the men says, Captain Veer has spoken. Is it or is it not as Captain Veer says? In response came syllables so much impeded in the utterance as might have been anticipated. They were these, Captain Veer tells the truth. It's just as Captain Veer says, but it's not as the master of arms said. I have eaten the king's bread and I am true to the king. I believe you, my man, said the witness. His voice indicated a suppressed emotion, not otherwise betrayed. God will bless you for that, your honor. Billy says that to the guy. He's blessing him. He loves the truth that much. Go down. No, there was no malice between us. I never bore malice against the master at arms. I am sorry that he's dead. I did not mean to kill him. Could I have used my tongue? <laughs> if he could have only spoke, it's like some relief would have been given to the pressure building up and he would have had some self. So the correlation here is between innocence and a sin. And wor words are the mediator. Without them, it's helpless. I did not mean to kill him. Could I have used my tongue? I would not have struck him, but he, fought, he foully lied to my face and in my presence of my captain, and I had to say something, and I could only say it with a blow. God help me. Now you know that I don't want to go through this because I want to leave some time for, I want to hear you all on this. You know that Veer will say he has to be executed. But the issue is not that one of the, one of the court members says, to, what's the motive? What motive could um, Claggart have had? You say he had a malice against you, why? And Veer immediately interrupts and says, that's not our business, that's not an issue. The, the issue is not motive, it's the effect of what he did. We, he has to be judged on that. Um, 
And he says, and this is 53 in my book, Though the ocean which is in, vi in violet nature primeval, though this be the element where we move and have our being, he keeps using as his frame of reference nature and natural law. Um, it has to be kept in mind. Um, nature primeval, though this be the element where we move and have our being as sailors, yet as the king's officer lies our duty in a sphere correspondingly natural, so little is that true that in receiving our commission, we in the most important regards cease to be natural free agents. When war is declared, are we the commission fighters previously consulted? No, we're conscripted. We have to do it because the king asks. We fight at command. If our judgments approve the war, that is but coincidence. So in other particulars, so now for supposed condemnation to follow these present proceedings. Would it be so much we ourselves that would condemn as it would be martial law operating through us? They have to enforce the law. For that law and the rigor, we're not responsible. Our VARD responsibility is this. Here, let me put this more broadly. If we were at war right now, even if, even let's say we don't, um, um, we don't support war. Let's say we're passive. If war were brought to our doorsteps and we had guns within reach and the enemy were gonna kill our family, would we pick up the guns to defend ourselves? What he's saying is there are certain circumstances where we have to do something even when we don't want to. So if the king calls us to war because it means our country's gonna be, because remember, that's where England is right now. France is on the, on the, on the threshold of defeating them. If, um, if we have to, we have to. So if the king says, you're going to war, so what's interesting here, we've talked about this before, this is social contract. Added, remember this, because the number of times, the social contract is the mo one of the most enlightened ideas being motivating all the people going on. It was for Dostoevsky and all the Western ideas. It is for the United States. Social contract theory, Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau hold, holds that we all exist in a state of nature. But in that state of nature, we're too given to pride and fear. So when anything threatens us, we strike out. We become uncivilized, violent. The only protection we have against that violence, even if we're naturally good, Rousseau believed we were naturally good. Um, if, when we're threatened, we form a contract with each other. I won't do this to you if you don't do this to me. We give that power to the state to enforce it. And it's only because of that protection that we keep ourselves from going to war. Is that clear? So what's being held up here in Veer's argument is a social contract in support of social contract. We might not want to go to war, but sometimes circumstances prevail and the king says to save our lives, we have to go to war. Men are gonna be impressed. How did the book begin? Billy was impressed. Went from the um, rights of man to the belly potent. Okay, so he's saying um, whether the fact that it happens to coincide with us or not is a mere accident. Page fifty-six. I emotionally broke in the officer of Marines. In one sense, it was, but surely, but. Um, purpose neither mutiny nor homicide, surely not by good man, and before a court 
less arbitrary and more merciful than a martial one, that plea would largely extenuate. At the last assizes it shall acquit. In the presence of God, God will forgive him. <laughs> That's between him and God. But here, his majesty's service in this ship indeed, there are Englishmen forced to fight for the king against their will, against their conscience for aught we know. Uh, though as their fellow creatures, some of us may appreciate their position, yet as Navy officers, what reck we of it? Still less wrecks the enemy. The, that's not going to keep an enemy from our doorstep. Keep an enemy. If criminals are, oh God, defund the police. If criminals are your doorstep, <laughs> you, I think you would hope ordinarily that there would be a policeman there ready to defend you. That policeman is called to do his duty. He has to fight by virtue of that job, even if he doesn't want to. So that's his argument, and it's on the basis of that that you know that Billy's convicted and sentenced. On, and there are constant biblical references on, on chapter 2 at the very beginning. The austere devotee of military duty let himself melt back into what remains primeval in our formalized humanity may an end have caught Billy to his heart, even as Abraham may have caught young Isaac. Veers likened to Billy's father. He loves the boy. He does not want to see him die. But the allusion here is to Abraham at that moment when God asks him and Abraham has to obey him to show there's something greater than his own private will that he has to follow. Um, you know that um, Billy, um, on the, it's wonderful, in, in uh, 25, chapter 25, Billy, you know, is up, up on deck sleeping, the, the um, Chaplain comes to visit him. He's so fond of Billy, but it, he finds it's just inappropriate to say anything because Billy's not going to be amenable to hearing it. Um, so Billy passes the evening alone with no fear of dying. The chaplain sees that very clearly. 25. The night so luminous on the sparred deck, but otherwise on the cavernous ones below, levels so like the tiered galleries in a coal mine, the luminous night passed away. But like the prophet in the chariot disappearing in heaven and dropping his mantle to Elijah, the withdrawing night transferred its pale robe to the breaking day, a meek, shy light. It's as if something in the setting, the air, carries a benediction, a passing on of a mantle. Um, that. Um, Something holy is about to be done um, under a new auspices. So they've gone from the ship that they were with Billy as a shipman. Now they're going to have to execute him. Um, on the penultimate moment, page 66, at the end of 25, the final preparations personal to the latter being speedily brought to an end by two boatsmen's mates, the consummation impended. Billy stood facing aft. At the penultimate moment, his words, his only one, his only one's words, wholly unobstructed by the utterance. He does not stammer. He does not stammer. His only one's words, wholly unobstructed by in the utterance, were these. God bless Captain Veer. Syllables so unanticipated, coming from one with the ignominious hemp about his neck. So, ordinarily, men are shaking, they're going to die, or, you know. Who is facing a death saying to the executioner, bless you? Jesus. Huh? <laughs> Would you wait? Would you wait? <laughs> you wait. 
syllables too delivered in the clear melody of a singing bird on the point of launching from the twig in freedom. That's the illusion. Too delivered in the clear melody of a singing bird on the point of launching from the twig had a phenomenal effect not unenhanced by the rare personal beauty of the young sailor, spiritualized now through late experience so poignantly profound. Um, go down. Um, he's hung, his body takes to the yard. The hull deliberately recovering from the periodic roll to leeward was just regaining an even keel when the last signal, a preconcerted dumb one, was given. At the um, same moment, it chanced that a vapory fleece hanging low in the east was shot through with a soft glory as of the fleece of the Lamb of God seemed in mystical vision simultaneously therewith, watched by the wedged mast of upturned faces, Billy ascended and ascending took the full rose of the dawn. You know that ordinarily um, prisoners descend, they drop. Billy's strung to the yard so that his head goes up to that mass. That's going to be important because of what um, um, Melville will do with it. 26. The purser and the scientist go at it. Um, the purser is saying in the middle of the page, um, it's clear that your sense of the singularity of this matter equals not mine. You account for it by what you will, what you call willpower, term not yet included in my lexicon. Sciences do not believe in willpower. They believe, remember, everything's determined. That's why it could be explained. The purser wants to know how it's possible that a man could be hung and not release his bowels. Doesn't happen. So he's saying, what's going on? Um, the scientist denies all of this. You admit then the absence of spatomotic movement was phenomenal. It was phenomenal, Mr. Purser, in the sense that it was an appearance, the cause of which is not immediately to be assigned. A scientist goes on the expectation as we don't, or the assumption, if we don't know it, we will. It can be knowable. That is, if, it's, if a miracle's just taken place, he's not seen it. He's still looking for something that will explain it. So, Melville is showing us once again this conflict between a religious way of looking at the world and a scientific. But tell me, my dear sir, pertinaciously continued the other, was the man's death affected by the halter or was it a species of euthanasia? Sorry, I kind of... Sorry. God. God, sorry. Thanks, Mary. Um, why is he using the word euth euthanasia here? This is the, side, the, the doctor. Why is he using the word euthanasia? Why is it appropriate from his perspective? What does euthanasia mean? The word actually means euthanasia um, from the Greek means easy um, thanos, easy death. Um, so he's, he's saying, what's he saying? But tell me, um, was the man's death affected by the halter or was it a species of euthanasia? Why does he use that word? What's he saying through the use of that word? Can you speak up, Doc? Um, that he went so easily to his 
but it wasn't the. It didn't release his balance. Spiritual jolt. Yeah. Is it to be explained be, as a euthanasia in the sense that it was an easy death, so it didn't affect the release of his bowels? He's trying to find a way to explain this phenomenon that's just taken place. Is he implying that, like, um, maybe drugs were administered ahead of time or something like that? I don't think so here. That'd be, that would be more modern, because we, but I think here he's trying to explain it away. Right. Or was it a species of euthanasia? So either did the noose kill him, or did something else contribute? Or he's just—I think what he's—he's—he's he's, he's rationalizing. He's what he's doing is saying, is that the degrees of death that some people's dying is easy and some is violent, and was this? He's just trying to use his mind to get around what the purser is saying to him. Was this a species of you know an easier death? It's the that's the no no or the and then the surgeon answers no no it was wait wait it was phenomenal Mr. Purser in the sense that it was a but tell me my dear person actually continue the other this is the I think this is the it's the Purser and then the surgeon answers him he doesn't believe in euthanasia right Continued the other was. Billy's death was for Billy so easy. He wasn't afraid of it. Um, he blessed Captain Beer. He didn't go with any guilt on his own mind. Um, so it was so easy that it wasn't violent enough to cause. To explain the fact that his bowels didn't read. Go to 28. We've got a. 28. Billy's executed, and this is interesting because this is, remember what we, when we did the Scarlet Letter, we talked about how important the Custom House was? It was Hawthorne's way of trying to make, justify a romance by rooting it in real facts because most people didn't believe in romances, they weren't going to take them seriously. The narrator says here, 28, the symmetry of form attainable in pure fiction cannot so readily be achieved in a narration essentially having less to do with fable than with fact. Truth uncompromisingly told will always have its ragged edges. Hence the conclusion of such a narration is apt to be less finished than an arch architectural um, fin finial, I guess. Um, so the execution is over, Billy's died. But the narrator said, we've got some loose ends here. And since he's more concerned with truth, he's not going to try to tidy up this thing and make it a nice, nice neat romance. He's going to be true to fact. So it's not going to be as tidy as some fiction. How it fared with a handsome sailor during the year of the Great Mutiny has been faithful again. We know it happened. Um, we also know that what happened shortly afterwards, because he's making it clear in 28, that Veer dies. He's going to engage the, the, um, the Athe, the atheist, one of the main ships of the French army, um, and is killed, even though they defeat the atheist. But it's interesting because remember, we're going from the, the ship was the St. Louis and rechristened re re the atheist. And um, Veer dies. So one chapter deals with Veer. He's dead now, okay? 29. 
go down. This is very beginning in 29. Some few weeks after the execution, among other matters, under the head of news from the Mediterranean, there's this official report made on what happened, what exactly took place. So everybody, <laughs> think about, I mean, I don't remember a time in history when newspapers have earned the term false, fake news, fake news that... On the 10th of last month, a deplorable occurrence took place on the HMS Bellapotent. John Claggerts, the ship's master of arm, discovered that some sort of plot was incipient among an inferior section of the ship's company, and that ringleader was one William Budd. He, Claggert, in the act of arraigning the man before the cap, was vindictively stabbed to the heart by the sudden drawn sheath knife of Budd. The deed and the implement employed sufficiently suggest that though mustered in the service under an English name, the assassin was no Englishman. That is, he had to be worse than English, because Englishmen wouldn't stoop to the... But one of those aliens adopting English um, cognomens whom the present extraordinary necessities of the service has caused to be admitted into a considerable number, because they needed to, you know, impound people. Go down. Um, his function was a responsible... He's honoring Claggart for being um, an image of a, res of a respectable Englishman. We've been talking about respectability from the beginning, the importance that it has and how much it comes under satire. Um, the economy, the crime, and the extreme depravity of the criminal appear, the greater view of the character of the victim, a middle-aged man, respectable, discreet, belonging to that. Remember this. Clagger did nothing to give away his envy, his evil, toward nothing. To all appearances, he was a good man. The ship knew better. I mean, the crew would have known better. And the crew who knew Billy would have known better. Um, that's why Veer had to take real action when they hung him, because he knew there was a possible mutiny. The ship would have loved, identified with Billy. But Clagger gave no indication of an evil. He did nothing, to all appearances. Belonging to that minor official grade, the petty officers, upon whom is none no better than the commissioned gentleman, the um, efficiency of His Majesty's Navy. So long, that is, the Navy depends exactly on those middle grade officers who are so good and so dignified and respectable. His function was a responsible and at once onerous and thankless. He had to do all these things and never get thanked for it. And his fidelity in the greater because of his strong patriotic impulse. In this instance, as in so many other instincts in those day, these days, the character of his unfortunate man signally refutes, if refutation were needed, the peevish saying attributed to the late Dr. Johnson that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. Um, he sees it because Claggart is so good that he's a testimony to how important real patriotism is. So he, by his example, he's refuting Johnson's axiom that, that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. The criminal paid penalty of the crime, the promptitude of the punishment has proved salutary. Nothing to miss, everything goes on, business as usual, life goes on. In the third um, and last chapter, um, the, the narrator describes the effect of the yard arm that held the rope. Everything is for a term venerated in navies. Any tangible object associated with some striking incident of the service is converted into a monument. It becomes a, a relic. 
And he says, the men followed the course of that spar because it was taken in, redone, refitted, taken out again, put somewhere else. But wherever it went, the men knew it. This is as close to something Catholic as, you know, he's, he's not Catholic, but he's describing that something that acquires the power of something beyond the natural order. And it's receiving its natural veneration because it's associated with what in the eyes of the men were a travesty, that Billy was innocent and executed. Now, I'm going to stop here because I want to put this question. In the poem written about Billy, a sailor writes it, Billy and the Darbies, it describes Billy going to his death and at the very end falling in his burial drop to the bottom of the sea. It ends like this. Um, but no, it's dead then, I'll be, as if told from Billy's point of view, come to think, I remember Taft the Welshman when he sank, in his cheek it was like the build, the budding pink. But let they'll wash in hammock, but me they'll lash in hammock, drop me deep, fathoms down, fathoms down, how I'll dream fast asleep. I feel it sleep stealing now. Sentry, are you there? Just ease these darbies at the wrist. Remember, he's got roof cuffs on. And roll me over fair. I am sleepy and the oozy weeds about me twist. Quick, here's my question. Um, how are we to understand Billy's execution? Was it just or not? Should Vera have let him go or given him um, um, an extenuating punishment? Um, what are we to make of Melville's view of this killing, or sorry, this execution? Because we know, um, and I think our view is shared with Veer, that Billy was innocent, that he didn't mean any harm, and it's interesting that his innocence is associated with his inability to use words. If he could have used words, he could have given a vent emptied some so he could have had a better response but his lack of words got in the way he kills him and he's executed and then we get this official report that makes Claggart the martyr and Billy the insurrectionist so how are we to look at the at what's done to Billy Budd in this context um, was it just was it not um, what is Melville's showing, remember he's gone past Moby Dick. He, he unmasked something awful um, in the Protestant world. Here it seems to me he's going to something beyond larger and deeper because he's going back to um, Adam and man's original innocence. He refers to Billy's an original Adam. He's an, um, an, remember I've used that term, the American Adam, the, the innocence of man that we think we're innocent. He's going back to something far deeper, far more universal, covers all things, this innocent Adam. What he does and the price that he has to pay for it. How we'd understand what happens. And if I can push this, I don't want to go there, but just keep this in mind. I find it hard to read this without thinking of the hard decisions that parents face at times when they have to give punishments to their kids when they don't like it. Now, I don't want to push that, but I'd like everybody to hold on to that. Because I think there are times in our lives when we face really hard decisions in our families, like Abraham, and we have to do things we'd rather not do. How are we to look at the story of Billy Budd? What does 
Melville's showing us about it. Well, I think that in his execution, clearly, they felt that the law was bigger than the one person. I kept going back to the very beginning of our class, reading the early Shakespeare about uh, justice and mercy. <laughs> yeah. And certainly the mercy was not there. They didn't listen to their consciences. They the so you think what they did was wrong? It lacked mercy? That they, they should have shown a mercy even under these circumstances? I don't I don't know because as I said And play it out. What would they were using him, I think, as an example, you know, if you if you rise up, this is what's gonna happen. Those aren't Veer's words, by the way. No. It's he, I mean he he says that we're deep we're dealing with this and we but he would let me Play it out if he had, if, if the um, sentence coming out of that summary court hearing had been extenuation and lesser punishment, something. Play it out under these circumstances. What would have happened? Or can you imagine? I know, I know that's not good because I've told you guys, knock it off. This is not about what we wish it would be or, or what might have been or. Yeah, it, it would. What? Yeah. Sorry, what? What's he saying about society, English society? Surely, I mean, remember, there's, America's already defeated Britain. It's broken from monarchy in its ways. We, we went to war. That war's over. France is now fighting that war on European ground. It's independence and da 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 da, and England is not. And so I think, you know, that one person as opposed to uh, the Navy and the rules and what could happen if the other people uh, felt like they could get away with a mutiny or... The rights of man were trampled upon. Yes. Uh -huh. He was a foreigner. Bob. What's your, come on, I know, I know all of you have not read it, and I, but I, although I, I'm really hoping you all will now. What's your thought on this and what happens with Billy and, and what the public does with it? Should, should he have been executed or not? I don't think they, no, I don't, I don't think they expanded it well enough to, to even take into consideration of the youngness and the innocence. So, and they didn't want to do that because they didn't want to have a mutiny. But they didn't get enough information, in my opinion, to even see whether or not there would have been immunity. Because the crew liked the young gentleman. That could have caused the mutiny. But they still had control of the ship. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel it's unjust. Mike, where are you on this? I didn't read it, so I had Nobody it. has. I'm not going to hear that. Come on, I want. What's your response? Is, was, 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 wait, hold on. No, no. 
Was it just or not? You think you think he should have been you think he should have been executed or not? Well, the hearing is the hearing before the captain is incomplete because uh, Claggart's testimony is not challenged, right? So, uh, granted, and, and but Billy cannot challenge it because he, he hasn't the words. How, what would he say to challenge it? Yeah. What evidence can anybody bring against Claggart? He's the master of arms. He's an officer. He's a middle officer. What I mean, I'm really, but I mean, Veer's arguments is sort of compelling. We're not here, even if even if we knew the motive, would that matter? He he killed a man. Good. Yeah, if if the guy who went to Billy was called no the dance well the dancer's a fairly salty veteran but would the guy who was um, that Claggart used to instigate this with Billy do you think he would have been honest no, no. in a court if he were called to tr yeah, I, I think you got to go back to again the ship and the captain the captain's in charge he's got to maintain that image and authority and authority yeah if he if he starts coming down here and say, well, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Well, now he's ruined by a mob, maybe. Or and opinions you can't even validate in lots of cases. Especially with the music. Does, wait, hold on. Does anybody know Claggart's motives except the poet and us? Does anybody, I mean, one of the great things we've been talking about is what the poet helps us to see that nobody else sees. Does the nation see the, this with any clarity from the news report? Take that news report that's official, universal, and set it against what the poet sees. Can, do we know, how, how well do we know the interior of a soul? Could anybody have brought evidence forward in a court that would have thrown in any evidence that would be reliable, you know, in a decision taken on... Bob, what's your thought on this? Was it just or not? Let me just pick this up because it's one of the things I want to underscore before we left. Imagine what the official report would have been after Christ's crucifixion from the Jewish community and the Roman community. How would that report have come out? What would they have said? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be just exactly the way it is of Billy that um, this insurrectionist when it, um, um, violently wanted to to arouse people to mutiny in the in the Jewish world against the Roman occupied forces, um, and he was properly executed. That would have been the official report. What? Well, huh? He was, a, he was executed to keep the peace. <laughs> right, right. For for a greater good. Yes. I mean, what was his name? The, the guy who says that the Jew says that better one man died than. Yeah. So, what light does that throw on Billy? Or it, is he like Christ? In, I mean, he says 
God bless Captain Veer. Bless you, he says that to the man. Um, he admits his guilt readily, does not stammer. My, my contention is the reason he doesn't let loose his bowels is because what he does is absolutely just. And I'm, I'm going go, to go out on a limb here. I think the tendency of most human beings is to act like they're innocent whenever they're persecuted. If somebody comes at me, <laughs> it's going to be hard for me to hold back. Billy says, um, I did it. God bless Captain Veer at the end. So the, my own reading of this is that he doesn't lose his bowels because he's one with God in that. And in that moment, he's giving up, I mean, Bob's use of the word, you know, who, who how did you put it, the innocent sacrifice. The Billy's like a, a, um, a Christ figure. And it's interesting because if you look at both sides, would the French see it that way? What would they do it? What, how do the English see it? If you're looking at people looking at things in terms of a war, one side's going to be right, one side's going to be wrong. That, or, or they wouldn't go to war. It's exactly like what's going on right now. One side is right, one side's wrong. They're killing each other because they believe that. But in the middle of this war, this young kid is being executed. Lots of people would say unfairly. But the whole way Melville presents it is like Christ. This is exactly, I mean, the report, even re re the coming of the dawn, the benediction of the, you know, the air, he's rising, he's giving rise to the dawn. It's stunning that everything Melville does shows in the midst of war, people are killing each other. And here's a nothing incident. The newspapers get it all wrong, but I think the way he does it is meant to leave us feeling this is a participation in Christ's death. It's like Supernatural Love, the poem of the little girl, you know. Go ahead, Lexi, yeah. So I think it's, this book is super interesting because Melville presents it in a way that every reader is left just torn with this question. How are we to accept Billy's death, right? Was it good? Was it bad? And what I think is interesting is Billy is presented both as Adam and as Christ, the old man and the new, simultaneously. <laughs> So you have the innocence for the fall, and then you have the Redeemer at the same time. Another thing that was interesting is that Veer visits Billy when he is in solitary. And if we take his name seriously, truth comes to goodness. And where truth and goodness are, there's beauty also. <laughs> and then truth is killed by the atheists later. <laughs> What's your word? Push back. I, what, I, That's not pushback. No, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm laughing. I'm, I'm so glad for what you did. I wanted to open, I wanted to include in my opening remarks, but I didn't. I was just too rushed with everything. But it's so, it, it's, um, it's such a commonplace in high school, you know, to present Billy Budd allegorically and absolutely destroy the sorts of things we're talking about, you know, the Christ-like similarities. A secular world is not going to, they're going to put to this level of abstraction to say this, this, this. You can't deny it, it's there. I mean, you just, it is all there. But we can't leave it at abstractions because what Melville is doing is saying there's a danger that there's something concrete going on here. Do we see it? He's the one who helps us to experience it, the poet. It's not an abstraction, we're not ideas. We go through this ordeal. We see what Claggart's doing. You watch Billy, his helplessness, his lack of words is stunning to me. 
the effect of that. Melville is so profound here, so absolutely profound. I think it goes way beyond Moby Dick, and you know how much respect I have for that book. This is a, a short work, and he manages in the short work to get to something exactly as you put it. This is the original American, Adam, Adam. It's Christ-like. Um, Melville handles it in a way that the narrator doesn't come down so that we've got this answer. He presents it in a way that leaves us with these questions, and they're tough, tough questions. And the reason that I included, you know, a while ago, that when I think about it, it, I look at this not just in terms of nations going to war, that's the context, we can't ignore it, but I think sometimes parents faced awful decisions like this sometimes where they have to do things that are really hard. They'd rather not do Abraham face that. So what Melville's dealing with here to me is so universal, so profound, it goes to first causes dramatically. I just think it's an amazing book. It's a really amazing book. Any more comments before we... You managed to cover it in one class. That was excellent. <laughs> and your notes. And that was really excellent. Thank you. I don't know. And to have, to have absolutely pinpointed that this is what we're supposed to believe about it would have been to romanticize it. Because in real life, things happen where there's good and there's bad. And he says that a number of times. Everything he does, um, he's so aware. I, I don't want to fall, you know, ambu ambiguity is an overused word, but what, what is amazing is that he, he renders it so faithfully that he doesn't even, I don't think, make it easy to say it's ambiguous. There's too much drama. It goes to too much. He's, he's going, I think he's going to a fundamental Christian mystery. But in, in the way Alexi put it, you know, that this is an image of the original Adam after the fall. He carries Adam with him, but he's put through an ordeal that, that makes him Christ-like. And in doing that, Melville, I think, was, I think Moby Dick is an extraordinary book. This is so short you can blow it off. The, the beauty of it is, is, is that what he does in such a short work is amazing. Okay, um, you get a break next week. <laughs> um, scare the kids next week, would you, when they come to the door? Put some fear into those kids in our... You guys have a...